The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Erica Graham. I've spoken here a handful of times. And I had my sermon prepared in advance for this weekend. And then I remembered that this was supposed to be on culture. And if you were here last week, you saw Sean played a Taylor Swift song, Shake It Off. And I thought, now that Taylor Swift song is a tough act to follow. Because I am a T-Swift fan. But when I thought about my sermon, one song so clearly came to mind. And I don't know about you, but songs for me can transport me back to, I can remember exactly where I was and how I was feeling and what I was doing when I was listening to these songs. And this one song does that for me. And I remember I kept my CD binder in the art room. And during art class, we had block scheduling. So I had 90 minutes to just get lost in music and paint and color. And I would always listen to the same burn CD with the same artists and songs. And one song in particular really reminds me of the sermon. school, there were really only two people that could understand me, and that was the Dave Matthews Band and Alanis Morissette. <laughs> Nobody else knew what it was like to be me besides that jagged little pill album and Dave Matthews Band. And Dave Matthews Band would come to Wisconsin every year for Summerfest in Milwaukee, and I'd drive up with my friends and thought I was pretty cool. And I hear that song, and I hear it differently today. Because I wonder, what is the space between that matters? I think of our God as a God that came to us, not as a singular God, but as a Trinitarian God. There's a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit in our Christian tradition. And it is the spaces between those that matter. And it's as if he knew that we needed to be reminded that we are relational by his very existence. Because he came to us in a trinity. 
and he exists in between the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And I think when we're living well, we are reminded and remembering that we too are relational beings. We are made in his image, and if his image is relational, then we are too. And on, on your deathbed, on your last day here on earth, you're most likely to regret not the times you didn't work hard enough, not the house you didn't have. You're most likely to regret the relationships that you didn't nurture. But if we look at how we spend our time, we're often spending time in everything but the relationships that matter the most to us. My husband called me out not too long ago, and he said, Erica, you have time for everybody else. A student calls you and needs you, and you drive to them. Or you get a coffee with some person, and you meet with them because you want to learn from them. Or you're friends with them. And I feel like I just get what's left over. And he was right. Because we have a date night on Thursday night, and that month I had canceled every Thursday because I had something that I was acting like was more important. And how often do we ignore the spaces in between us that are the most sacred and important for things that matter less? Because we forget this truth that we are relational beings and our relationships matter when it comes to the success of our life. I've been transparent with some of you about um, some struggles I've had with, with addiction. And at a recovery meeting I went to, one of my first ones, I got a little coin or chip. And on the chip it says, it said, together we can do what we could never do alone. And I thought, that's kind of cute. Like, you don't know me, I can do it alone. But like, that's cute that you guys need each other. But the reality is, we do belong to each other. And we need each other. And if we think we don't, then I think we're missing the whole point of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be human. Because we're social creatures. There's a reason a baby can't survive on its own. We're the most socially and motherly or fatherly dependent creatures. In the wild, you can have a baby and the baby can often exist on its own. Not humans. We need each other. And so all of this relational talk reminds me of my favorite parable. And my guess is that it might be your fa favorite parable too. And that's Luke 15 and the story of the lost son. One of the most famous Bible stories. And Charles Dickens called this story the greatest story ever told. Some theologians believe that this one story can summarize all the values in the New Testament. And so it seems fitting that Jesus was able to tell a brilliant story that can literally summarize a whole New Testament into one parable. And Luke 15 starts off, Jesus became increasingly popular among notorious sinners and tax collectors and other social outcasts. 
The Pharisees and religious scholars noticed this. They said, this man welcomes immoral people and enjoys their company over a meal. So I picture this setting like a middle school lunchroom. And the Pharisees are all at a table together and they're like, can you believe who Jesus is sitting with? Because during that time, who you ate with mattered. So who you had meals with was a way to establish your socio-religious boundaries. And Jesus was breaking those rules. He was eating with people that were the Pharisees and scholars considered beneath him or outside of him. That's what Jesus always did. Spoiler alert for the Bible. He always was with the outside and not with the inside. And so I picture this gossipy middle school lunchroom. These Pharisees are talking about Jesus. And Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, he answered to their reply with a story. And if you notice, when people put Jesus on the spot and say, why are you doing this? He almost always responds with another question or a story. And so he tells this story and it's called the parable of the lost sheep. And he says, okay, Pharisees, let me, let me explain to you why I'm eating with the outsiders. Suppose you had a hundred sheep and you lost one of them. Wouldn't you go off into the field and find the one? And when you found the lost sheep, wouldn't you bring it back to the other 99 and celebrate because what is lost has been found? And I picture the Pharisees being like, okay, maybe you do belong at that table. Like, what are you, why are we talking about sheep? And so he tries another story. He says, okay, let's think of something that's more relatable to you guys. Money. Let's, let's say a woman had 10 coins and she lost one of them. She, this is her in distress. This is Google stock images. <laughs> I make these sermons awkward. Um, so suppose she lost one of them. She's in distress. And when she flips up her house and finally founds a lost coin, wouldn't she celebrate and call the neighbors over? <laughs> this is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> wouldn't she celebrate and call the neighbors over and say what is lost has been found? Let's rejoice and celebrate. And I picture the Pharisees and the religious scholars being like, Jesus, what are we, why are we talking about sheep and coins? We just want to know why you're eating with those people. And he says, okay, you know what? You guys don't get it. I'm going to tell you a story and just put it in really simple form. And we'll use humans because you religious scholars can't think in imaginative metaphor. So he tells the story of the lost son or the prodigal son. And there's been dramas and movies and paintings on this story. It's probably a story you already know. But the great thing about parables is that every time you read them, you learn something new or you look at it from a different perspective. And so this parable starts out, and I'm going to warn you, it's a lot of reading, but I'll refer back to it later, so we'll power through. So it starts out, once there was this man who had two sons. One day the younger son came to his father and said, Father, eventually I'm going to inherit my share of your estate. Rather than waiting until you die, I want you to give me my share now. And so the father liquidated assets and divided them. 
A few days passed and his younger son gathered all his wealth and set off on a journey to a distant land. Once there, he wasted everything he owned on wild living. So to summarize that quick, a son asked his father if he could have all of, inheritance, all of his inheritance now. And in Jewish times, the sons would get all of the inheritance in the land. But to ask for that while your father is still alive is basically like saying, you're dead to me. It's like saying, I know you're still alive, but I want my earnings now. Give it to me. And the father did. And he squandered it. So he was broke, a terrible famine struck that land, and he felt desperately hungry and in need. He got a job with one of the locals who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man felt so miserably hungry that he wished he could eat the slop the pigs were eating, but nobody gave him anything. And eating pig slop sounds disgusting to us now, but in those times, it had an extra negative connotation because in Jewish times, pigs were an animal that you did not associate with. So if I saw you eating pig slop, I would question you as a person. But in those times, it was an association that had this almost satanic involvement with. So he had this moment of self-reflection. What am I doing here? Back home, my father's hired servants have plenty of food. Why am I here starving to death? I'll get up and return to my father and I'll say, Father, I have done wrong, wrong against God and against you. I have forfeited any right to be treated like your son, but I'm wondering if you'd treat me as one of your hired servants. So he got up and returned to his father. Now Luke 15, 20 is what Peter ends, who's a pretty popular theologian, he says this is the most important line of the Bible. And certainly this parable. He says, the father looked off in the distance and saw the young man returning. He felt compassion for his son and ran out to him, enfolded him in an embrace and kissed him. And the reason that line is significant is because the father has not even heard the son's confession yet. His first reaction was to love him. And the son said, Father, I have done a terrible wrong in God's sight and in your sight too. I have forfeited any right to be treated as your son. But the father turned to his servants and said, Quick, bring the best robe we have and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. Go get the fattest calf and butcher it. Let's have the feast and celebrate because my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and has been found. So they had this huge party. Now up until now, the story is pretty similar to the lost sheep and the lost coin. So they find the lost thing and they celebrate. But what's different about this particular story is that there's a third character that's introduced. And I think a lot of us can relate to that third character reads, now the man's older son was still out in the fields working. He came home at the end of the day and heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked, what's going on? And the servant said, your brother has returned and your father has butchered the fattest calf to celebrate his safe return. The older brother got really angry and refused to come inside. So his father came out and pleaded with him to join the celebration. But he argued back, Listen, all these years I've worked hard for you. 
I've never disobeyed one of your orders, but how many times have you even given me a little goat to roast for a party with my friends? Not once, this is not fair. So this son of yours comes, this wasteful delinquent who has spent your hard-earned wealth on loose women, and what do you do? You butcher the fattest calf from our herd. So this brother's angry, right? Understandably so. His delinquent brother is out squandering all the family's wealth, and now there's a party for him in his house, planned without the brother. But the father replies, my son, you are always with me, and all I have is yours. Isn't it right to join in the celebration and be happy? This is your brother we're talking about. He was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found again. And so I don't know where you find yourself in that story. Maybe you have seasons where you feel lost. Or maybe you're the brother and you feel like you are working hard and following the rules. You're a good man or woman and you're doing everything right, but yet everyone else is getting rewarded and you feel like your work is unseen in the world. And you're watching other people who feel less deserving than you get rewarded while you continue to do everything right and feel unnoticed. Or maybe you do relate more to the lost son. And most theologians believe that this parable is a metaphor for God, so the father in this parable is actually our father in heaven. And so when God shows up with a loving embrace for his son, who's just squandered all the wealth, that's the moment that we're supposed to remember, that's how God responds to us too, when we feel lost and undeserving. And it's so counterintuitive, this logic, and I think this is why this story is powerful, is it's not logical to celebrate when we mess up. If my husband said, I'm gonna liquidate our assets and go to Vegas and spend our money on wild living and loose women, and then I saw him return over the horizon, I don't think I'd be like, I am gonna throw you a party tonight. I love you no matter what. Uh, yeah, that, that's not how it would play out in my house. And that's why this parable's famous, because it doesn't make any sense. That's why we're still talking about it 2,000 years later. It's because the economy of God's grace doesn't run on rules of scarcity. It's always abundance. And while the brother noticed that that other brother had messed up and still got a party, the reason that exists is because if love and empathy and grace are abundant in the eyes and heart of God, then there's no comparison games to play when it comes to who deserves God's love and parties. One thing that I love about Ecclesia is we've literally lived this parable out in Mexico City. We went to a community that was often seen as on the outside. And what did we do? 
we threw an ecclesia party with like a marachi band and tacos and that's what it looks like to live this parable today and when i was 16 years old it was one o'clock a.m and my family would sleep upstairs and i was downstairs in the kitchen and I was eating like half a loaf of bread and a stick of butter. Not normal. Not really the most productive use of your time at 1 a.m. And my dad came downstairs, and I'll never forget the feeling. He came downstairs and he caught me. And I was binging. And this had been a problem because food was kind of disappearing in the house. And I'd wake up in the morning and I'd run seven miles and I said, I just like to run. But I was binging and then over-exercising. And my dad said, Erica, we need to get you help. Honestly, I think he just wanted morning toast. <laughs> but he took me to get help. And we, me, my mom, and my dad, we drove to Milwaukee, which is like an hour away, hour and a half away from where we lived in Wisconsin, and I didn't think I needed help. I was like, you guys, I, I mean, I had all A's, I was in three sports, I was doing well, I had friends. So what, I was eating a loaf of bread at 1 a.m. and running compulsively. Can we just not talk about it? I'm fine, I don't need help. We met with this woman, I said, she's stupid, she doesn't know anything. What, what do experts know? I'm 16, Dave Matthews gets me. And I never got help for that until more recently. And a, a specialist told me, and I'll never forget this, she said, Erica, if you find yourself eating too much or binging by yourself late at night, the only way you will ever heal is if you respond to yourself with love. If you go on a run the next morning that's full of punishment and shame, you're not gonna heal. Because the opposite of punishment is healing. Isn't that true in our criminal justice system that the opposite of punishment is healing? And isn't that true in our lives? And isn't that what that entire parable was about? That when he squandered all the wealth and messed up, God responded to him with a party. And it doesn't make sense to us. But it's the reality we live as Christians is that our God is always ready to celebrate us no matter where we are in life. And it's the space between us and God that doesn't change for him. And it's our invitation to accept and to notice that the space between us has always been love. Even when we don't feel like we deserve it. There was an addiction study by a famous researcher, Bruce Alexander. There was a TED talk on this, and it's a pretty controversial study. Um, the scientific community has pointed to some flaws in this study, and I say this as kind of a disclaimer that this study is controversial, but I think it does highlight at least a very basic truth. And Bruce Alexander found that most addiction studies you have a rat in a box, and you can prove that you can get them addicted to drugs. But Bruce Alexander created something called rat paradise. 
And so rats had other rats to mate with and obstacle courses and wheels to play on and all kinds of things to do. And according to his study, which was done in the 70s, if a rat was in rat paradise and got administered those drugs, he was less likely to become addicted. And the reason that's controversial is that we don't know how much environment plays a role in all of this, but at the very least, I think one simple thing that that does show is that we need connection. And when we don't have connection and we feel lonely or in isolation, we are much less likely to connect with God and connect with purpose and meaning and each other. And Brené Brown's research shows that loneliness in our country is on the increase. So we are becoming more and more lonely as a species. And what's interesting is we're also becoming more and more sordid. So we hang out with people that think like us ideologically, theologically. We like to hang out with people that confirm our beliefs. So we live in these echo chambers and oftentimes when we exist in echo chambers, what happens is that we develop our relationships based on who we can hate together. And what she finds is that who you can hate together, whether it's a group of people or one person, that that kind of connection works. You can make a lot of friends if you establish common enemy intimacy. But she finds that your feelings of loneliness in those kinds of connections also increase because it's not real connection. It's not connection rooted in love. It's connection and rooted in who you can hate together. And maybe you have a friend where your whole relationship revolves around who you can hate together. Maybe the only way you know how to connect is to talk about how horrible of a person or people they are, and that you don't have much of a connection with that person outside of who you hate together. And I would challenge you, and myself included, that in this divided time, that we find a way to get out of our echo chambers and connect more authentically with each other, because according to Brené Brown's research, that's the only way for us to become less lonely. In Stanford, Dr. Emma Sapala she found that loneliness is worse for your health than smoking, high blood pressure, and obesity. You have a slower recovery from disease if you admit to being very lonely. But the most fascinating part of this is that loneliness has nothing to do with how many friends you have or if you're single or married. Loneliness was described as a connection that comes from within. And when I think about that parable and that space in between God and the lost son, if that lost son come, returns back to God and feels that the space between them was always love, that that's the kind of connection that we can feel on the inside. We're gonna watch a short movie clip and it's from the movie Into the Wild. And there's also a book, Into the Wild. And it's a story about this guy, Christopher. It's a true story. And he's navigating his way to Alaska and he 
develops all these really meaningful friendships on his way. And he has a rough family life at home and he's struggled in interpersonal relationships and he just wants to get away and live in Alaska by himself without being bothered by people because that's where he believes he can connect the best with God. And there's a short video clip on this. Yeah. Uh. You all right? Ah, yeah, a little. Been, been ahead. I'm gonna miss you when you go. I'll miss you too, Ron. But you're wrong if you think that the joy of life comes principally from human relationships. God's placed it all around us, it's in everything, in anything we can experience. People just need to change the way they look at those things. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna take stock of that. No, I am. I am. But I wanna tell you something. From the bits and pieces, I put together, you know from what you told me about your family, your mother and your dad. And I know you got your problems with the church too. But there's some kind of bigger thing we can all appreciate. And it sounds like you don't mind calling it God. But when you forgive your love. And when you love, God's light shines on you. And so he meets that character, Ron, and he continues on to Alaska. And I'm going to spoil the movie for you, but it came out in like 2010, so honestly, it's your fault. <laughs> um, he eats a poisonous berry in Alaska. And he journals every day when he's in Alaska. And on his last day, and this is a true story, so they found the journal and everything. On his last day, the last sentence he wrote, what he discovered on his deathbed was that happiness is only real when shared. And that's such a common story to realize that after it's too late, that the spaces in between you and those you love and you and God had mattered this whole time, but it's not been the space that you've been the most focused on. On a quantum level, there's this um, astrophysicist nun. She's not, she's not an astrophysicist, she's a nun that studies astrophysics. I don't know the difference. Um, but she's at Villanova, and she's a professor there. Her name is Ilya DeLeo, and she had a conference in town two years ago, and I went to it, took a bunch of notes that I didn't even understand. And she was describing physics on a particle level and quantum mechanics. And there's something called quantum entanglement. And it's when two particles are related to each other, so they, they become entangled with each other. 
And then when you separate those two particles, one will spin a certain direc direction and the other one will spin the other direction and they're still connected and nobody knows why. And the space between these two entangled particles is full of mystery for the scientific community. But yet I believe that even on that level, that is proof that the spaces between us matter and they are important and that there's something going on there to pay attention to. And that we, when we live into these ancient stories and parables that remind us that relationships matter, we can remember that when we feel lost, the only way to respond to ourselves and others is with love and to return home to Him. Ecclesia, let me pray with you. Dear God, I pray that as we go out into our weeks, that we will be inspired to connect and foster the relationships that mean so much. I pray that we will live into your divine Trinitarian image and that we will foster and nurture the kind of community that celebrates the loss and remembers those following the rules because we know in your kingdom it's all the same and it's all good. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.